0: In a spirit-filled church, when sin abounds in the sorrowful Christian, they share it, without fear of criticism, and find comfort, encouragement, and edification. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now, for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you praise and honor and glory for your Word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May your Word this very day be which goes forth from your mouth. It will not return to you empty without accomplishing that which you desire and without succeeding in the matter for which you send it. Lord, I know that this is your word. I don't know whether you're sending this out to soften and convert or to harden the hearts of our hearers. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, it would certainly soften my heart and it would soften all the hearts to, to those to whom you send it. Your will be done. I desire, dear Heavenly Father, that your word would be heard. Do with it what you will. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that we recognize that this is your word. This is not the words of men as quoted from Scripture. Those are the words of God. Everything else, commentary, men. But your word is unchanging. Your word is good and holy and true. It reproves us. It rebukes us. It's a mirror. It's a light in the darkness. It is the truth. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray it may be all of these things, for we might see it for what it is and not what we want it to be. I ask that Jesus Christ would receive all the honor and all the glory, that we would find our place before a righteous and holy God, that lowly place that it is. And I pray that we would humble ourselves to come before you only through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, in whose name I pray, amen. This uh, message is episode 38. That they might know, uh, the Roman Revelation series And the key verse, even though I'm not going to be expositing it explicitly 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things of the world If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him In our previous episode I spoke about the meaning of chapters 9-11 In Paul's letter to the Romans It is there that the Apostle Paul continues his teaching about the perseverance of the saints. From chapter 8, from verse 31, he wrote, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then when concluding that line of thought, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or trouble, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword And what's the answer he gives for that from verses 39, 37, 39. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that isn't, an incentive to believe in the perseverance of the saints. so I don't know where else to go to work to the word where we could find one more conclusive. However, as I said last week, um, there is this matter of the falling away of Israel. and men will say, well, if that's true, then how could Israel fall away? Which, if you go through chapters 9 through 11, which I did in the last sermon, in a kind of all inclusive message for the three of them, which was tall order, but I wanted to include them all, then you find the meaning behind the fall away and then the subsequent restoration, which is yet to come in history. This week, we will continue our study by reading verses 1 through 3 from Romans 12. But then we will stop from properly examining those verses in detail and and be focused really on this one phrase, be not conformed to the world and, and its implications. So Romans 12, 1 through 3, we read this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, by which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that is which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, and here's the admonition that makes this work, the previous verses, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Very, very important, those last, that last verse. Therefore, spiritual service of worship is unconditionally linked to its non conformity to this world. Israel's great sin was that she wanted to be like the surrounding nations from which God made it perfectly clear that she was to be separated. I mean, the giving of the, 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 the manner in which they ate food, what foods to eat, all of that separating her from the surrounding nations and all the other ordinances. Her conformity led to all manner of sins, idolatry, which led to repeated judgment by God, exile from the land and slavery in Babylon for 70 years. Having read Paul's teaching, he, having been inspired by the Holy Spirit of truth, what is the tr- let me ask this question, what is the church? I'm not asking you to explain your conception of the church, what you've been taught according to the traditions of men. I'm asking you to explain what God says from the Bible about what Jesus is making, which he call, that which he calls his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Since that time, men have been very busy building churches. The question is, however, what part of what they are building is according to Christ's will revealed in his word? I do not have time in one message and maybe more to come to explain in all detail about what Christ demands his church to be. So let us consider for today some principles upon which the church must be built according to Christ for this message, if I'm able to get through all this material. I will give you just four basic principles upon which Christ's church must be built if it is to glorify and please Him. The principles are built upon the following four verses. One, Jesus said, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in Him. 1 John 2.15 Hence, non-conformity to the world from Romans 12, two. Second principle, second verse, verses. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13.35 And also, in the same principle, John 19.27 Then he, that is Jesus, said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Three, Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Quote, if we say that we have, that's John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin first john 1 6 and 7. and then fourthly uh, jesus came up and spoke to them saying quote all authority in heaven and earth Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28 18 to 20. As we approach principle number one, let me first ask the question How does the world view life? According to the reality in which we live? Or as a fantasy that it wants to believe? If the world views the circumstances and consequences of life as a fantasy, and not according to what it really means, or what they really mean, then the church is called out of all such fantasies and into the reality of God's truth. Let's let's keep that thought in mind. That living in reality and not a fantasy Is primary To not being conformed To the world Principle number one The church of Jesus Christ Is called out of the world Hence its people Are not to love the world 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world Nor the things in the world If anyone loves the world The love of the Father is not in him. Hence, non-conformity to the world, Romans 12, 2. Now, of the following principles, and and any principle that we take by which we must live our lives, comes under this principle of being called out of the world. I mean, that is what the church is. It's it's an entity that God has called out of the world. The world is in sin. The world is condemned under sin, by God's righteousness and holiness, not what we view, not how we see things, because we've been tainted, we've been confused, we've been deceived. There's no deception in Christ. And the the calling of the church is not to be conformed. It's non conformity to all that the world is. What we love, we set our affections on. We value, we honor Whatever we love, which is contrary to God's ordained will, is idolatry. Whatever we love that is contrary to God's ordained will is idolatry. We sin if we value vengeance, immorality, a proud look that is walking down the street like we are somebody. These attitudes are what we choose to be. And they they are sinful. If we choose those, when we choose those, we become sinful. What is God telling us our view of life should be by saying to us, love not the world. The world in Greek is cosmos. And first, and literally, something ordered, like the universe and creation. That's not what he's talking about here. The second meaning in English term is, where we get the word cosmetic. And it's derived from cosmos, i.e. something used to treat the face. What, what, what is that? Well, you know, when you put cosmetics on your face, the hope is that you won't look like you naturally do. <laughs> which, you know, which is to put on a face. It's to put on an appearance for the sake of looking better than we are all life through people act one way when in reality are something completely different that might be hard to swallow that to be extremely true you ever go to a party where people were drinking you know alcohol has that ability to remove inhibitions now when you remove the inhibitions thereby people are revealed More for what's going on in the inside than you would normally see. See, there's there's self-control, there's self-restraints to hold back what we think all the time. If we actually said what we thought about other people when we were in their presence, that would break up all um, all, all, uh, relationships. But see, there's a facade. There's a fakeness behind all people. The person who remembers how they acted when inebriated, they may feel very foolish, guilty, or or full of shame for what occurred. The drunk gets to see themselves for what they are, and not what they would rather think themselves to be, or what they fake. This realization is, is what makes the prophets of God so hated. I mean, the world kills prophets. It killed Isaiah, sticking him in the hollow of a tree, and cutting him in half. After healing a nation and proclaiming the truth more clearly than ever before, they hung Jesus on a cross. After scourging him and ripping the skin from his body. I mean, there's just no love for someone who tells the truth in this present world. For this reason, I'm going to quote a little bit from Jonathan Edwards, who uh, goes down in American history as the greatest philosophical and theological mind on American soil, he preached a sermon that lit a spark that began what we now know as, or some know as, the Great Awakening. From from 1730 to 70, in Great Britain and America, revival saw tens of thousands saved during that period of time and laid the foundation for the American experiment in democracy and our republic form of governance. The sermon that Edwards preached was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In Edwards' sermon, he gave a reality to humanity's condition before a holy God, perhaps like no other. Here are some of the quotes, but I'm I'm, I'm reading this because I want us to see humanity as Edwards saw it, through the word, and these quotes come from scripture that he was using where men would fall in due time, and he takes all the parts of that particular verse, it's more than that, uh, to explain it, but I'm, I'm not using, I'm not trying to exposit that verse, I'm just saying, showing just how honest, what a prophet the man was. And how fearless he was to tell his congregation, which never forgave him by the, for the sermon, by the way, um, but just how, how people are before God in this world. All of us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is what he, he said, quote, They, sinners, deserve to be cast into hell so that divine justice never stands in the way it makes no objection against god using his power at any moment to destroy them yes on the contrary justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins again it is not because god in unmindful or is unmindful of their wickedness and don't resent it that he don't that he doesn't let loose his hand and cut them off The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. Again, I quote, There are in the souls of wicked men those restraints. There is laid in the very nature of carnal men a foundation for the torments of hell there are those corrupt principles in reigning power in them and in full possession of them that are seeds of hellfire these principles are active and powerful and exceeding violent in their nature and if i were not for the and if it were not for the restraining hand of god upon them they would soon break out it would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions, the same enmity does in the hearts of damned souls and would beget the same torments in them as they do in them. The souls of the wicked are in scripture compared to the troubled sea, Isaiah fifty-seven twenty. And again, I quote, it is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. "'Tis no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that he doesn't see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. Further down, I quote his application or parts of it. "'You probably are not sensible of this. "'You find you are kept out of hell.' but don't see the hand of God in it, but look at other things as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold you up. A person that is suspended in it. And again, the wrath of God is like waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course, when once it is let loose. This true, that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto, The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God would should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with in- omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yes, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing To withstand or endure it. This, then, is my concluding quote. So much more has been preached, however. Quote, 'Tis everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for one minute, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, You shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will be absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly this almighty merciless That you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that our punishment will indeed be infinite. I do not say these things to mock any person, to mock humanity. It's not my place. That's above my pay grade. There's no judgment for any of us to make in regards to anyone else or of mankind itself. It's not about judgment. It's about seeing clearly what God sees when he views us as people. What does this sermon have to do, however, with not loving the world? Well, I've already explained that the world lives in fantasy and it places a facade over itself so it doesn't have to look clearly what it truly is. It took a revival of God for a preacher to proclaim with perfect clarity the condition of men or close to perfect before a holy God compared to how we usually look at ourselves. God is now and has been seen increasingly for the last 150 years as a God of love as though there were no wrath and anger attached to his righteous character. There is no gospel apart from God's wrath. There's no salvation apart from eternal punishment. We're not being saved to a better life. We're being saved from eternal damnation. That's the reality. God is equally righteous and merciful. Through the grace of God, people can repent and believe in God's saving work in Jesus Christ. However, apart from his grace, all, all, I say all people, are damned to an eternity in hell because of our pernicious, wretched, wicked, disobedient, irreverent way we treat our creator. God is not all loving and nice. No matter what the world demands, we preach. The church does not take its marching orders from the world. It does not put on a face like the world. It most definitely must not accept the lies that the world tells in our day. The church has been inundated with worldly lies, just like Israel was. Its worship is cheap, theatrical, its leadership high-minded and conceited, and its salvation built upon what has been called Easy believism. I mean, these things that I'm saying here have been said for a a century. Charles Spurgeon was preaching these things back in the 1860s. Jonathan Edwards was concerned about these things in, in the 1830s, in the 1730s. I mean, just go back, and it's just repeated and repeated. I'm just repeating what other men have said and thought. I'm just repeating what other men have seen in God's Word. Jesus said... If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gain the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? You know, according to the Greek, to follow Jesus. We must hate ourselves or be unwilling to associate with what we once were before repentance and faith. We were liars, deceiving and being deceived, Romans 1. There is no place for deception when following the source of truth. That's Jesus Christ. That brings us to principle number two. After having considered loving not the world, principle number two the church of Jesus Christ is organic, personal, loving, and not an institutionalized school of learning. Quote, Jesus said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. And then their following verse, it is also written in John 19, 27. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So principle two, the church of Jesus Christ is organic, personal, loving, and not primarily institutionalized school of learning. Some will say to me, "Is not teaching a vital part of the church's responsibility, to which I will reply to that person. It depends on how we define learning. Whenever Jesus used the word teaching never meant mere intellectual assent. A A person only learns when what they are taught is incorporated into the whole man, the whole person, the mind, the emotions, and that place in our heart where we make decisions. God tells us in the letter by James, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, But deceives his own heart. This person's religion is worthless. And then he says. And he defines. Pure and undefiled religion. In the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows. In their distress. And to keep oneself unstained. By the world. Good works. And purity from within. That's pure religion. Words can. Don't have to. But words can mean nothing just like faith without works is dead. From the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God was given by which a spiritual life was experienced by the church at that time. By spiritual life, I mean this, that life which is not of the flesh, unaided by the Spirit of God. The flesh finds its source in human effort, human pride, lusts, and not the self-sacrificing Son of God. This is what we read of Acts, of the church in Acts 2, 43 to 47. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Now when I see a church like that, then I'll think maybe I'm seeing revival. You know, the facade that goes on today that's called revival, we're not, we're not talking about that. And I understand, and I'm not going to talk about in this message, apostolic gifts. But there is this living out so that they're actually selling possessions and sharing as anyone, anyone at need. It continues day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. Now let's be honest with one another. Look, and I would be the first one to say, look, I have fears. I have sins. I'm accosted by temptation and testings. I'm just like every other man. And, and, and every one of us is a lot weaker Most of the time, then we're willing to admit, admit, you know, especially, you know, maybe in our own quiet closet. Hopefully, that's what we're doing, to admit what is really going on in our heart. But this church, you know, we have to ask the question, what was really going on day by day with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house? You know what Luke was revealing by those words? Day by day, with one mind, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. This church was bold in public. And they also honored Christ in private. They broke bread together in their homes. There were no great church buildings. They became close. They were of one mind. They fellowshiped together. They learned. They accepted the things of the Apostle taught. And by the Holy Spirit, they shared those things with one another. There was no senior pastor, no great arguments over theology. There were no great seminaries and no universities. Only people filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit as a deacon, who waited on tables, preached to the stoning of his body and the honoring of Christ. In that day, those who were greatest behaved like the least, and became a servant of all. How far, are, how far we have all come. God have mercy. The day, of Bene- the day of Pentecost was the very first period of spiritual revival in the history of the church. Revival is not of the flesh. It does not originate in fleshly people. It is not according to a human timetable. And it always glorifies the Son of God and not the people involved. Let me say that again. Revival is not of the flesh. It does not originate in fleshly people. It is not according to a human timetable. And it always glorifies the Son of God and not the people involved. From the first day onward, the people were in awe. This is not merely intellectual. Awe touches a person deep down in their soul. It moves their emotions. It bows them before God in deep humility. Humility takes a person out of a self-centeredness and causes them, us all to look outward to God and others. The end result of revival is a love that can be observed. It is not superficial. It is never in words alone. Quote, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? James 2:15 and 16. The Apostle John took his Lord's earthly mother, Jesus' earthly mother, into his home and watched over her for the rest of her earthly life. He lived out unselfishly all his days. But don't miss the message. It's not good works of which is just being spoken of here but good works done by the Holy Spirit of God, led by God. My wife and I like the, the show signs Sealed, and Delivered. In the last episode, Norman and Rita first see the opportunity to adopt the baby of a co-worker who felt she couldn't afford to properly raise a child on her own as a, as a miracle. They saw it as a miracle. They couldn't have children, at least not yet. You could see the woman really did not want to give up her child. And miracle, I would take as God working through providence. But then afterward, Norman says to his wife, What if this child is not meant to be our miracle, but we are meant to be its? Later in the story, they take the woman aside and tell her, We would like to adopt you. (laughs) She asked, What do you mean? They replied, well, we have room in our house where you and your child can stay and we would like to help you raise your child. What do you say? Of course she said yes. And that's a a great picture of unselfishness and and Christ love being lived out. Principle number three. The church of Jesus Christ was never meant to hide in the dark and to pretend to be something it's not. Let me say that again. The Church of Jesus Christ was never meant to hide in the dark and to pretend to be something it's not. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, quote, If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Sunday morning services where people gather, some small and some large congregations where they are taught and the word of God goes forth in one direction and then have no other contact with brothers and sisters of like faith for the rest of the week is living in disobedience to God, revealed word and will. Now, I'm not being legalistic in this and saying this. Uh, I'm I'm not saying that you can't miss a service or something. Uh, I'm just saying as a way of life, and let me continue by saying this, the verses in 1 John chapter 1 reveal Christ as a person with whom the apostles had fellowship and shared friendship and recognized him as Lord day by day for three years. This kind of behavior happens among some theology students. It certainly was true in my own life when I attended Elohim Bible Institute when it was still in operation. <clears throat> the institutes have all but completely vanished, now giving way to more professionally and, dare I say, recognizably acceptable to the world's seminary universities. However, close fellowship is not restricted to leaders, but is meant for the whole church. In the same chapter 2, verses 20, 21, and 27 of 1 John, we are told this. But, quote, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And further on, and as for you, the anointing which you received from him remains in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things, you remain in him. Teachers can only help to deepen what Christians already know by the Holy Spirit. I mean, a teacher can proclaim the word, but he can't actually place it in a person's heart. He can't open a person's mind and a heart to receive the word. I mean, these are all things that are done by God and God alone. So we need to be careful how we view teachers and learners. At the end of the day, there is far less difference between pulpit and pew than our natural fleshly pride that leads us to make idols of men far less difference than we think. I do not want to fall prey to the sin of Korah, who taught himself to be in Moses' place. Each and every child of God, each and every child of God is saved by the same blood of Christ, and is responsible to live according to the measure of the gift that they receive from Christ. Now, having said that, that doesn't in any way undo what John said when he said, you don't need for anyone to teach you. The principle is there. Every child of God receives the Holy Spirit, not just preachers, not just missionaries, not just pastors. Every child of God, and every child of God is responsible to know the word of God. So neither should we fall prey to the sin of idolizing men. Biblical fellowship means walking in the light. To love the cosmos, as we said before, to love the world is to love a facade where we look good, but we are being fake. In a spirit-filled church, when sin abounds in the sorrowful Christian, they share it without fear of criticism, and find comfort, encouragement, and edification. When sin abounds in the rebellious, there is confrontation and exhortation, or eventually, over sufficient time, church discipline, in love, and in prayerful hope of restoration. Where these realities do not exist, there is no loving church in behavior. No matter what the people think or believe about themselves, and no matter how much teaching from the pulpit takes place. Learning is about application. It's about living it out. It's not just about holding ideas in the head that we never put to practice. And believe me, there are enough scripture in the Bible to talk about these matters of accountability. Principle number four. The church of Jesus Christ never assumes faithfulness on its own part, but lives a life of self-evaluation. Quote, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 Principle four, then, The church of Jesus Christ never assumes faithfulness on its own. but lives a life of self-evaluation in verse 20 he says teaching them to follow follow in greek is to watch over to guard to a guard properly means to maintain and preserve figuratively it is to spiritually guard or keep intact keep intact what the truth the true reality in which we live. The wise man does not presume upon his own transformation into sainthood, but doubts his success and questions his his obedience all the time. He does not doubt God, but he has serious concerns and reservations about himself. There are many biblical mandates with self-doubt in mind. Here are just a few. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting, but to himself alone, not to another. Second Corinthians thirteen five. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, unless uh, indeed you f- you fail to test. Test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith is the admonition. 2 Timothy 2 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is not something we assume that we're doing our best. This is something that we question all the time if we're walking in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. And this is talking about Israel, particularly in the book of Numbers. Therefore, let one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now Christ must be confessed in each and every teaching. It is not sufficient that a man stand up from the pulpit and say, Christ has come in the flesh, as if that's going to cover all the rest of his teachings. That's not what the apostle is saying here. He's saying, do not believe every spirit. That means question everything. Now, I know when we do that, we sound critical, but I'm not given the admonition God did to the Apostle John. 1 Timothy 4, 15, and 16 says, quote, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Preserve, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Take pains. Be absorbed. In this, we progress. Our progress will be evident. And then he says, pay close attention to yourself. That's self-evaluation. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and then 12 through 15. Quote, for you are still fleshly for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? are you not walking like ordinary people? The question is here, and that's end quote, there is strife in the church today. That's not really a question. If you say no, there's no strife in the church, well you're not really aware of what's going on. The church is fractured into thousand little bitty pieces. And every piece being separated from the whole dishonors Christ. Did you catch that? Every piece fractured into it, every piece separated from the whole dishonors Christ. Now what separates the church? Well, people in one church or another, or people within the same church, looking in a divisive way that they're right and everybody else is wrong. I mean, there's only one right and one wrong. God's not confused. The word is all unified. So when people divide from one another because of differences, we all need to step back and say, am I right here? Or am I just going by what I hear? Am I going by what's being taught in the church without really giving it the pain of studying God's word that it needs? He goes on in this section and says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or—and or, and or is not in the text, wood, hay, or stubble, Each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so through fire. Now do not misunderstand what's being said here. This is not a judgment for sin. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is the bema seat. This is where Christ hands out rewards. So sin is not the issue, just empty works. Just things that could have been done better, but they weren't. The, The apostle makes it clear when he writes these words. It's exactly what's going on. He says, quote, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The temple of God includes every person, this is end quote, the temple of God includes every person in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Breaking off pieces as if they did not belong, is to destroy the temple of God. We do not break off a piece when we exercise church discipline because the hope there is them to come back and they will come back if they belong to Christ and if it's done in the spirit of love and led by the Holy Spirit and not the flesh. But when we tear pieces off saying to ourselves, you know, these people are no good or these people aren't right, without giving them the proper love they deserve as actually being part of the temple of God, if, in fact, they are, then this is wood, hand, stubble. This is not gold, silver, and precious stones. It is better to be tested by fire now than to disappoint our Lord then. Sin will not be the issue, just empty works that are done out of pride and self-assurance and not by the Holy Spirit of Christ. We're not going to disappoint Christ when all sin and hiding sin has been swept away and we see Christ. Let me say that again. No one is going to want to disappoint Christ when we've been made perfect. And sin is just not even an option in our own heart. And at that moment, we're going to see as clearly, more clearly than we've ever seen before. And what we're going to see is a suffering Savior. And none of us are going to want to see that suffering Savior in light of our own poor way in which we may have lived, particularly in tearing apart the church by undue criticism. There is a discernment that must take place, and there's a judgment which would never take place. And if you can't properly discern between the two, you need to work on it. I hope this sermon helps that. Love not the world, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That only happens when we study the word for ourselves. We delve into it as a mirror that that shines all the dirt on our own face, and then we see the blood of Christ to cleanse it away and walk in the light of his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to share this message from Romans chapter 12, 1-3 and 1 John chapter 2, 15. I ask your Heavenly Father that you would again open our hearts and our minds to not just know these things, but to apply them so that we can live them out. Lord, we can't live to perfection. Um, When we pass from this life, we will join those who are are the souls of righteous men made perfect. In that hour, in that hour alone, we will be made perfect. Now we we walk as we walk in the light, we walk not as those who say we have no sin and make God a liar, but we walk as those who know we have sin and we reprove ourselves in that. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that each hearer would enter into this truth and the reality of Word that's really meant to cleanse us from sin. And, and to enable us to be obedient. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>